Welcome to Fast Fiction. When I watched Quentin Tarantino's new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, I was impressed as to how he had handled the 1969 Manson murders. Back in 1980, our family had driven through Death Valley and been involved in an associated incident that had left a big impression on us. So here it is. The Crockpot and Death Valley, 1980. We're all going on a summer holiday. No more working for a week or two. Fun and laughter on a summer holiday. No more worries for me and you. For a week or two. It was a rare moment in history. The Cross family four in a car in the middle of California, singing the 1963 Cliff Richard song, and not fighting. Yes, by now 11-year-old Nathan was old enough to annoy. And this he did at every opportunity, mostly to his brother. Fortunately, Crossy and Nate rarely spoke to each other, and when they did, JC and I wished they hadn't. But this had been a rare good day, and so far no blows, verbal or otherwise, had come to pass between them. We weren't strictly on holiday, but on our way to take up residence in Seattle, Washington State, USA. JC had landed a job at the research centre for a couple of years, and we were determined to enjoy another grand adventure. Our meanderings had taken us from San Francisco down to Mexico, and we were now embarking on the last leg back to Seattle with a look into Death Valley. As the car made its cautious way down the steep, winding road, the song of choice changed to an even older one. We love to go adventuring along the mountain track And as I go, I love to sling my knapsack on my back We hadn't seen too many knapsacks, or walkers for that matter, and there was a good reason for that. Turning off the six-lane highway, we had descended below sea level through a ravine which had obviously been carved through solid rock. It got windier and steeper, over a distance of nearly two miles, then suddenly flattened out to a vast, totally barren valley, Death Valley. The countryside lived up to its name, bleak and littered with the rather sad and slightly morbid sights of house skeletons that had deteriorated or been heavily vandalised through neglect. They must have been grand in their heyday, as they were each situated on large blocks, now dominated by scrub grass. One site in particular gave us reason for mirth, and that was the remnants of yet another retrenched home, which had nothing more than its bathroom and lavatory fittings out under the canopy of sun and sky. In fact, we decided this an appropriate place to have our picnic lunch, and I still crack a smile at photos of us sitting in the bath and on the loo eating sandwiches in the middle of this enormous expanse of the great outdoors. I was into collecting memorabilia at the time, and with mixed feelings, 
picked up a strand of blue plastic cornflowers that had once matched the tiling around the bath. Carefully packing up our litter and moving on, we were surprised to see a lone figure ahead that seemed to be the epitome of our song. Although not exactly a mountain track, he was indeed adventuring on foot with a backpack, which obviously included a small tent and living accoutrements. Indeed, in our Aussie language, a swagman. We slowed down and asked him if he needed assistance. His hair was long and unkempt, but still showed off one gold earring, totally unknown back in those days. His clothes were a little grubby, and, oh, wonder of wonder, he even had a small tattoo on his forearm encircling the letter B. He spoke well and politely. No, he didn't need assistance, but as he had been on the road all day, he would welcome a little company. Glad to accommodate such a simple request, we moved everything over, and he climbed into the car in the back seat with the boys, who stared at him fascinated. Bob turned out to be an excellent companion and enthralled us with many wonderful stories of his adventures around America. He was quite candid at his lack of money and told us that he could only ever afford sleeping under a roof and a cheap motel one at that every six or seven days when he would take the opportunity of shower, shave and laundry. From the look of him, his seven days were just about to expire. Knowing of the history of Death Valley and the notorious Manson family who had once roamed it, we had to ask him if he had ever met any of the stragglers who were reputed to still live there. Although the drug-related murder rampage was 12 years gone and the heinous Charles Manson still in jail, many of his acolyte cult women had recently been released and at least three known to reside in the valley. Oh, no, no. No. Oh, wait, wait, yes. He had met up with a strange, wild-looking woman a week or so before who had joined him at his campfire. She had shown him how to fry eggs in a paper bag. No, she hadn't been threatening, but he wouldn't have been surprised to find out she had a very nasty streak. She too had talked about the Manson murders and, well, come to think of it, she had been rather knowledgeable with some of the details. So as the evening closed in and we began to wend our way out of the valley, we drove into a Motel 6 where we would stay for the night. With a certain amount of enthusiasm and trepidation, I heard JC and the boys invite Bob to share an evening meal with us. Please, we've got lots of food. Oh, can you, can you come? Money was in short supply for the Cross family back then, And in addition to sleeping cheap, we ate cheaply too. Lunch would always be sandwiches and fruit, and the evening meal was via a huge crock pot, which could and would provide a glorified stew. Conscious of the motel signs, which had the cautionary no cooking notice displayed in every room, even crock pot cooking was a little more complicated than one would think. The evening ritual was to prepare the vegetables just before retiring for sleep and after ensuring that all windows were shut 
and a towel across the door to stop any enticing aromas, the electric casserole pot would be set to slow cook during the night. Packed in a special vacuum box the next day, it would stay warm and need only a few minutes reheating when we bunked down each evening. This was exactly the situation as we unpacked and invited Bob into our night's lodgings to share our nutritious, if perhaps a little boring, evening meal. But spirits were still high, and our newfound friend's company more than compensated with even more exciting stories of his travels. He brought the world to us through simple stories of his wanderings through the African veldt. Did you see any lions? Canoeing up the Nile, even the Australian outback, and more recently in the Canadian Rockies. He was on his way to Tacoma, a small township an hour or so from Seattle, where he would stay with his sister and work in the Boeing airplane factory until he had saved enough money for another adventure. By the time the boys were ready for bed, the weather had changed and a massive storm was raging outside. The wind howled, rain splattered on the windows and every so often thunder and lightning put on their pyrotechnics. At a fairly late hour, Bob took the last sip out of his cup of instant coffee, gave thanks for our hospitality and made ready to leave. Fortunately, or otherwise, he politely refused our offer of a piece of floor for his bedroll and made for the door. Hugs were exchanged all round, as well as his and our American contact numbers. Then Bob walked out into the dark, savage night and out of our lives. And that's where he stayed. Even though we made many attempts when settled in Seattle to contact him, all to no avail. About two months later, JC and I were at an academic party and chatting aimlessly with guests about our overland trip when I recounted the meeting with our intriguing backpacker. The very name Death Valley still invoked shivers and I was enjoying my storytelling when one particular fellow became very interested and began asking more questions. When had this happened? What was Bob's full name? How old was he? Where exactly had we picked him up? At which motel had we stayed? I became curious. Why the interest? Had Bob done anything bad? Had we nurtured a viper to our bosom? The answer left us quiet and contemplative. The man, who turned out to be a policeman, confirmed the knowledge that at least three members of the notorious Manson family had returned to Death Valley after their prison sentence and had been living in camp conditions for at least two years. Rumour had it that they often split up and passed as hitchhikers or a victim of a car accident. They robbed and bashed with little guilt or even necessity at times. Authorities attributed a few unsolved deaths to them too. For instance, a body had turned up some six weeks earlier, which may well have been a victim of the trio. He had been stripped bare and therefore not been identified. But he had a small tattoo on his forearm, a circle which enclosed the letter B. If you would like to know a little more about this story, please go to our website, fastfictionpodcast.com. 
And by the way, you may be interested in a new podcast magazine blog we have just launched as Brianda from Brisbane. More information and links can be found at briandafrombrisbane.com. Our new episode is particularly focused on movies. Why not call in and listen in? Thank you. 